The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Let's continue in our worship as we look to God's Word together. I'm going to invite you to be in Luke chapter 12. Today we'll be looking at some other passages as well, a couple in the Old Testament, but primarily we'll be uh, looking in Luke 12. Continuing our study there as you're flipping to Luke 12, getting ready. Just a couple of housekeeping items. First of all, uh, welcome to you who are maybe visiting today. I've already met some new people I haven't seen before, met before. Maybe today's your first day or maybe it's uh, been a couple of times you've been here. So thank you so much for being as our, as our guest. By way of reminder, after the service, I will be out in the front across the lobby there in the what we have the visitor center. And we would invite you, if you're a guest or visitor, to come to the visitor center uh, if you have any questions, we have a free gift for you, uh, so uh, we'd love to get to know you, so take advantage of that if you can. Also, housekeeping. Pastor Cliff, whoa, you're not supposed to have a cup in here. Yeah, that's true. But if it has water, that's okay. So that I just want to remind every once in a while, not everybody knows the rules, so uh, it's okay to have water in here, uh, here in the sanctuary, uh, but keep your coffee and Kool-Aid and those kind of things outside in the patio prior to coming in in your Sunday school classes uh, you can enjoy food and drink we're just trying to keep uh, it to water here in the sanctuary just a reminder if you're out there in uh, video world out there in the courtyard good morning to all of you outside uh, you can drink as much coffee to your heart's content out there so that's just a little housekeeping item we'll bring up every once in a while also today, we will keep the young ones in here, no children's church, because we have the privilege of celebrating communion as a church family. So we'll do that at the end of the sermon. If you know Jesus Christ, you're welcome and invited to be a part of the Lord's Supper with us. That's how we'll conclude the service today. And one last thing. Oh, did you hear the news last week? It was declared. The pandemic is over. <laughs> hip, hip, hooray! I'm not kidding. YouTube it. The pandemic is over. We should, there should be more celebrating going on. I'm surprised there hasn't been more celebrating going on. The pandemic, I'm living by it. The pandemic is over. There are implications to that. All you folks outside, come on in. Come on in. You got a mask on? Take it off. Those are, you know, op opportunities you have. Anyway. I did not make that up. I'm just, I'm just basking in the reality. Well, anyway, that is all preliminary. Now let's get to God's word as we continue our worship. We believe here at this church that God is the living God. God communicates. God speaks. He speaks through his word, the scripture, the Bible. Objectively, that's how he speaks. That's the only way he speaks today. His revelation is full, delivered once for all, completely sufficient, he uses the truth of the Bible and Scripture to speak to our hearts and our minds in addition with his Holy Spirit. So there is a subjective way that God communicates to us. It is real. It's internal. It's beautiful. It's personal. And that's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit as he ministers his truth to us through his word. And we speak to God through prayer. So right now we have the privilege to search God's living word with the help of his Holy, uh, Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, to instruct us of his living truth so that we can 
first of all, be exposed to it, then understand it, and then ask for God's help to apply it to our life and then pray to the Holy Spirit that he'll use it to change our life, help us grow and be more like Christ. That's our view of the Bible. That's why it is such a privilege. It's not just a human book. It is the living Word of God. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Hebrews, and we'll be alternating back and forth, which is great because there's two very different points of emphasis. One, a theological treatise, pretty heavy, and then the other is narrative stories of the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's a great compliment. So for the next three weeks or so, we'll be in, Lord willing, uh, the Gospel of Luke. I say Lord willing because you never know what might happen. Like on a Saturday, you get your sermon ready to go, and then all of a sudden you lose your voice. Has that ever happened to you when you had to preach? Well, it happened to me last week. <laughs> I lost my voice on uh, Saturday, so then I had to do an 11th hour call somebody. Uh, oh, Derek, yeah, he works here, and asked Derek in season and out of season. So thank you to Pastor Derek who was able to bring the word last minute's notice. So God has been gracious. I've been able to recover. Didn't have the plague, just so you know, for the record. Didn't have the plague. You're allowed to have things like a sinus infection and cold still. That's what I had. Um, and I think I got my voice back, but we'll give it a shot. So let's go to Luke 12. That's where we pick up. Those of you who have not been with us, or maybe you forgot because it's been a while, we're in the Gospel of Luke. We're going through the whole thing. 24 chapters in your English Bible, the longest book in the New Testament in terms of sheer words. Um, Luke was a, the physician and personal friend and partner of the Apostle Paul and did ministry in the 50s and 60s, planting churches, wrote this book in about 60 A.D., about 25 years after Jesus died and went to heaven, and God's Spirit communicated this divine truth to Luke. He faithfully wrote it down, and God has graciously preserved this gospel for 2,000 years, and now we can have nothing but utter confidence in it when we read it. This is true history. This truly comes from God. And Luke has been emphasizing the ministry of Jesus Christ, and he's been selective in giving only the priorities that we need to know. Uh, so after talking about the birth, now we are in the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus Christ. We have uh, spent uh, the past several chapters in Luke that covered about a two-and-a-half-year ministry in Galilee, which was Jesus' hometown. It's where he grew up. And that was his stage of operations, and he preached all throughout Galilee. We think about over 200 towns and villages that existed in that day. And he was going around saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he would elaborate as to what that meant. Keep in mind his audience was Jewish. These were Jewish towns and Jewish people. He didn't go to Gentiles or pagans. His priority was his home people. He came to his own says John chapter 1, verse 11, to the Jews. He came to the Jews. So that's his audience for the entire two and a half years. Uh, that's important because they have prerequisite understanding. They have been raised and trained theoretically in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. And they were raised in the synagogues. And they have a very specific, narrow worldview about reality they have a very stubborn worldview, actually. And they were studious not to let false ideologies creep into their worldview. So they were committed to the Old Testament, to Moses, they would say, to the religion of Yahweh. This is the audience, the people that Jesus is preaching to two and a half years. That was his priority. 
uh, now we get to a point where after two and a half years in his hometown in Galilee, he decides, because he's being led by the Father and the Spirit of God, that it's time to go to Jerusalem and fulfill his mission for why he came. Why did Jesus come? He came for a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons he came was to die. That's why he came. He, he was born to die. He came to die as a substitute. He came to die as a sacrifice. He came to die as a sacrifice for sinners. He came to die for his sheep, John 6 says, and John 10, for his own. So that's why Jesus came. And so now he's going to turn away from his hometown, Galilee. They got all the information they needed. And then now he's headed on this slow trek for a six-month period to Jerusalem. And he will arrive and land, perfect timing, at the greatest, really, feast of the year. And that was the Feast of Passover that they would celebrate for a week. And then specifically on uh, Passover day when the Old Testament law required that you slaughter a lamb. You kill a lamb on this one of the greatest feast days of the year. You, you kill a lamb specifically as a substitute for your sin. You slaughter this innocent creature that has been selected, this innocent male lamb, as a substitute propitiating, expiating the sin of other people. Someone who is innocent dies in the place of someone who is guilty. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem during that feast. He is crucified on that very day, the day of Passover. Willingly. That's why he came. He is the Lamb of God. He came to die. He came to die on Passover. He came to die to absorb the wrath of the Father in the place of sinners. That's his ministry. That's why he came. So as we look at Luke 12 now, He's got his sights set on Jerusalem. He's also got his sights set on focusing not on the masses and the multitudes, which he has been doing for two and a half years. Now he's really going to zero in and focus on his 12 apostles, even Judas. Because Judas has his part to play. He has scripture to fulfill. Judas's role was predicted a thousand years before he was born in Psalms. And... 500 years before he was born in Zechariah. And so Jesus is taking the 12 as the 12, treating them all the same for the next six months. And so, yes, he gives attention, love, care to the masses, but he's primarily focused on the 12 because he's going to hand the baton to those 12 when he leaves. They will start the church. They will shepherd the people. They will represent him here on the earth. So when we look at Luke chapter 12, so to help you with your study, chapter 12, verse 1, all the way to chapter 13, verse 9, all goes together. It's one setting. It's one event where Jesus preached and taught. This is probably a summary of what he taught. This is the high points of what he said. This sermon, but it is one sermon. It all goes together. You can't really study this uh, outside of its context, verse, just one verse at a time or a paragraph. You, you've got to understand this is in the context of chapter 12, verse 1, all the way to chapter 13, verse 9. So I'm just setting the parameters of our study before we jump in at verse 35. Verse 1 says that he just got finished a lunch that didn't go well with the scribes and the Pharisees where he was invited, and he just blasted them calling them hypocrites, and basically false teachers, deceiving and misleading the entire nation of Israel. 
That's what he said at lunch that he was invited to. And he called them names. So you got to remember, that's the last thing that happened. The end of chapter 11, it says, um, Jesus' rebukes were ringing and stinging in their ears. And from that point on, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leadership was hell-bent, literally, on we must shut this man down, we must kill him. And so they were, from that point on, they're looking for every way that they can trap him. What does that mean? Lay a trap for him so that he will fall into it. They want to bait him so they can publicly humiliate him and therefore publicly discredit him so that his thousands of followers won't follow him anymore. That was their plan. And these scribes and Pharisees, they wielded all the power. They were the power brokers in the nation of Israel at this time. There were thousands of Pharisees. They were the authoritative spokespersons and teachers of the Bible and how religion was run and how synagogues were conducted and the scribes were the authorities on the law. You don't defy either of those. If you're a Jew, if you're an Israelite, if you're a Hebrew, if you profess to believe in Yahweh, you comply, you submit, you obey, you go with the flow, you don't buck the system. If you do, there will be consequences. There will be public consequences, severe consequences. Desynagogued. Kicked out of the synagogue. John chapter 9. What is that for a Jew at this time? That's everything. That's your whole life. In their culture, that was your whole life. That was your complete identity. It's all your family. It's all your friends. So you don't want to have to face that. So that's just one example of the power that they wielded and manipulated to, over the people to control them and get their way. These are the people that Jesus just had lunch with. He exposed them, called them hip, hypocrites. Um, and then we transition now to chapter 12. And then it says, verse 1, that Jesus, the crowds are following him all over the place. He can't get away from the crowds. They know he's coming. And the crowds begin to mount in a mass around him. And it says, literally, there are myriads upon myriads of people surrounding him. Myriads upon, that's a Greek word, myriad. It means 10,000. 10,000s of 10,000s of 10,000. Minimum. This is out in the open. This is somewhere out going towards uh, Judah and Jerusalem. There's no convenient uh, public way to accommodate all of these people as they're just massing in. We don't know exactly where, but they're, they're just crushing in to the point it says they were stepping on one another. People's lives were being threatened. They didn't care about the other. They're just crushing in because they want to hear they're fascinated by this rabble-rouser, this miracle worker, this one who says things that go against the establishment, that makes people angry, that divides people, that heals people, that gives free food. So this crowd of thousands of people, primarily what draws them all, the common denominator is just utter curiosity and fascination, not loyalty. It's a mixed crowd. So we've already seen that as well. So keep that in mind as we read verses 35 uh, to 48. He's talking not just to his apostles. It's his apostles in the midst of these 10,000 people and sprinkled throughout are his enemies. Remember the scribes and the Pharisees who set about to try to trap him, to expose him, to get him arrested, to get him killed. Now, you would think at the end of chapter 11 where it says, uh, the last verse that says, <laughs> 
says, um, verse 53, when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely in many subjects, plotting against him to catch him, snatch him, snare him in something he might say. Okay, there's a plural. There's a lot of them. There are literally hundreds of them. And they have all the authority and all the power. There's one of him. Think about that. And you knew that and there is a threat and wherever you go, we're going to haunt you. We're going to dog you. We're going to follow you. We're going to shadow you. We're going to set traps. You are going down. You know, most of us, if not all of us, what would we do? We would zip it up, right? We'd shrink back. We'd crawl into our shell. We'd speak political correctness so we don't offend anybody. Not Jesus. Actually, you know what happens? He goes public all the more. Counterintuitive. We're going to see that as it really gets worse. The hostility gets worse from chapter 12 to 24. That's why he ends up getting crucified. So that's the context. Uh, then just uh, by way of summary of chapter 12, 1 through all the way to the end of the chapter, chapter 13. Basically, if you were to look at it, it is just so rich, uh, we can't even plumb the depths of it, of what Jesus said in this one sermon. This is one of the most comprehensive sermons that Jesus ever gave in his three-and-a-half-year ministry, I'm convinced. Look in all of his sermons. And it, it makes sense. Why? Because um, he's got a captive audience of tens of thousands of people. This is a, I would say this is a complete systematic theology in seed form or outline form. He even goes in the proper order of a systematic theology. Uh, verse 1 was his prolegomena. What's that? It's a fancy word. It just means his introduction. What's his introduction to chapter 12? Uh, hey, watch out for the scribes and Pharisees. They're liars. They're deceivers. And I know they control all the power. And I know uh, you are under the purview of their oversight with respect to your religion, your family life, what you believe, your politics, your culture, your economy, everything. I know that, but beware of them. Beware of the leaven. What's that? The poison of the Pharisees and the scribes. And that's where it starts. That's kind of his thesis. And then he just unfolds. The rest of the chapter, really, is Jesus is telling people, you know what? What I'm telling you? You need to evaluate and look at the culture in which you were born, the worldview in which you inherited, and shed the entire thing and replace it. That's what you need to do. You have been misled. And Jesus goes point by point of how their entire worldview needs to be displaced and replaced with truth. That's why he says, uh, the scribes and Pharisees, they're deceivers. They're full of leaven. They have poisoned truth. And you need to start all over again. You must be born again. And that's why he, he starts with God the Father. You need to have the right, proper view of God. Yeah, they claim to be uh, believers in Yahweh, but they've told you the wrong thing about Yahweh, God. So that's where he starts, beginning of chapter 12. You need to have the right view of God, the Father, you need to fear him, not man. That's where the proper Christian worldview starts. And then from there, he talks about, then you need to have the right view of Jesus. He calls him the son of man. Not only do you need a right view of God the Father, fear him. Stop fearing man. Stop fearing the Sadducees and the scribes. Stop fearing human institutions, human religion, human tradition, human consequences, human threats. You fear one. That is God the creator, God the Father, the true God of the Old Testament who was revealed fully in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. So early on he mentioned, you need to believe in the Son of Man as well. 
Confess the Son of Man, and I will confess you before everyone else in heaven. And then, he, right, and then after that, he talks about the Holy Spirit. You also need to embrace the Holy Spirit. He is revealing the triune God. This is the correct biblical worldview that has been smothered by the scribes and the Pharisees. And then from there, he talks about how to live your life. Then he goes into practical theology. Quit being greedy. That whole section that we already covered, the entire paragraph, what's the theme? Quit being materialistic. Quit uh, thinking about and being preoccupied with the here and now. What you're going to get. He calls it greed. That's a worldview that just focuses on the here and now, the temporary, the temporal, the world. Right here, tunnel vision. And he says you need to change that. Because that's what the scribes and Pharisees are all concerned about. It's, it's the world, it's the here and now, it's right now. All the priorities of uh, human vanity right now in this world. It's one dimensional. That's not how a true believer thinks. You need to lift up your eyes and think about spiritual realities and go beyond this earth, go beyond the temporary. That's why so much in this talk is Jesus talking about the future, the future, the future, what is to come. This temporary life, that's not what it's all about. It's really about the future, the future which culminates and fulfills everything. So that's, that affects your practical living. Quit being materialistic. Quit being worldly. Quit worrying about uh, tomorrow and what you will eat. Put your trust in the God you're supposed to fear, the God, the creator of the universe, who provides, he knows everything, he's all-powerful, he provides for his children. You need to rest in him and trust in that. You need to have a complete paradigm shift in how you think about the future and how you think about God. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Said it five times. That's practical living. Built on solid biblical Trinitarian theology. Your life flows out of correct thinking. That's what he's doing. And he's, he's, fooling, he's giving us a, a complete purview of a comprehensive worldview from God's point of view. A biblical worldview, we could call it. We could call it a Christian worldview. That would be my question for you today. How's your Christian worldview doing? Some of you might not even know what that means. My worldview, yes. Your worldview is how you uh, view the world through, from your perspective in every area of life. It's how you interpret every area of life. How, how's it doing? How you view politics, how you view social media, how you view entertainment, how you view religion, how you view history, how you view science, how you view money. How do you view it? Well, you're supposed to view it through the lens of the Bible. That's a Christian worldview. That's what Jesus is trying to say. You need to view everything through the grid of God's truth, God's word, not the tradition of men, not the tradition of the scribes and Pharisees who have clouded biblical teaching. Yeah, they quote the Bible. They use the Bible. They talk about God. They have, they have clouded biblical truth. They've skewed the truth. Tear away the veil. That's what life is all about, is tearing away the veil, being re-educated, reprogrammed with biblical truth and supplanting human wisdom with that. So that's what he's doing. And then finally, he completes his worldview uh, by telling us to have the proper eschatology. Eschatology, what's that? Ology, the study of. Eschatos, the last things, how you view the world. How do you view the end of the world? How do you think the world's going to end? What do you think is going to happen in the future? What do you think is going to happen in the next, wait, what are we down to? Uh, is it eight years now that the world's going to end? can't remember. It was 11, and then the years go by. I keep losing track. Anyway, so I think we're down to about nine or eight years. The world is going to end through climate change, what we've been told. That's one view. But there are other many views. There's reincarnation, just keeps going cyclical around. These are worldviews about the future. This is eschatology. Everybody has an eschatology. 
You may have come in thinking, I, this morning, I, didn't know, I don't have an eschatology. Yeah, you do. Because your eschatology is your belief, your theology, your convictions, your ideas, your loyalties about the future, about what's going to happen. We all have that. We have an eschatology. As a matter of fact, I would almost guarantee that just about every, the majority of your thoughts today already up to uh, 11.30 a.m., if we were able to track all of your thoughts today since you woke up till 11.30 a.m. California time, probably many, if not most, of your thoughts have been future-oriented today. Did you know that? They have been. What am I going to do this week? What are my goals? What am I doing in six months? What am I doing tomorrow? What am I doing after lunch? What am I doing after the sermon? What am I do- That's how we are. That's why Jesus addresses this. This is why it's so important. You've got to think properly about the future. You can't think properly about the future if you have wrong theology, if you have a wrong view of God, a wrong view of Scripture, if you have imbibed human tradition that has twisted and skewed your thinking, and we all have that problem. So that's one of the things Jesus is saying. Quit listening to the scribes and Pharisees and their cultural religion because every single one of us, do you know what? We are subject to cultural religion, aren't we? It mixes in and assimilates and, and messes up biblical religion, every single one of us. And so we need to continually evaluate our own life as a Christian. Okay, what is it that I believe is biblical versus what is it I believe or at least operate by and think is true that is cultural and not true? And so that's what Jesus is doing is stripping away these cultural, non-biblical ideas of religion. And so one wrong view that the Pharisees and scribes didn't have is uh, a proper view about the end of the age and the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah. And so that's what verses 35 to 48 is all about. Here's eschatology that is correct, it is detailed, it's specific, it's motivational, and it is the proper view about the Son of Man. Let's look at it. Look at verse 35. By the way, the sermon today, the title there is just simply, be ready. Exclamation point. Be ready. And it's to the point. That summarizes the entire passage. 35 to 48 goes together. 35 to 48 is one thing. 35 to 48 is about being ready. Be ready is an exhortation. Be ready is a command. Be ready is an imperative. Be ready is something that we must do if we are Christians. If we don't be ready, we are being sinful. If you're not being ready, it will affect the way you think. If you're not being ready, it will affect the way you live. Hence the importance of being ready. And so Jesus says three times, be ready. That's why I titled the sermon, Be Ready. Not very original. I stole it from Jesus. Because look at verse 35. Depending upon your translation, this is the New American Standard. Be dressed in readiness. Be ready. Get ready. Get ready. Literally, gird up your loins. That's weird. Yeah. Everybody wore a robe in those days all the way down to their feet. It's just the way it is. You see it on television. That's pretty accurate. You had undergarments, but you had an outer robe. That's just, Jesus did. Everybody did. Gird up your loins means, okay, if you're ready to go somewhere, if you've got to run a race or there's an emergency or you've got to do work, you can't run in your robe. You'll trip over yourself in your robe. Gird up your loins means pull up your robe, pull up the loose ends, and tie it around your waist like a belt so you've got freedom to move and run. And this is what God told Moses' people to do at the time of the Exodus. We're leaving. We're leaving Egypt. Gird up your loins. Gird up your loins. That means pull up your robe. Get ready to go. Be ready. That's the point. Be ready. So verse 35, Jesus says, be ready. 
uh, verse 40, be ready. That's even more specific, different Greek word, be ready. Literally, be prepared. Good translation, though, be ready. It's a command. It's an imperative. We must obey. We're obligated to do this. Be ready. When was it? Uh, a couple weeks ago, came home Friday night. Supposed to go to dinner. Getting close, time to leave, and somebody said, are you ready? That just means, are you prepared? Are you ready to leave? Be ready. Uh, be ready, verse 35, be ready, 40, and then in verse 47, get ready. So what is this passage about? Being ready. The question is being ready for what? Verse 35, 36, and 37, and 30. It's kind of interesting. Jesus gives this command. Okay, gird up your loins, get ready. And then he starts uh, giving all these analogies and metaphors of what they need to be ready for, but he doesn't tell them what to be ready for. He doesn't tell them what to be ready for until verse 40. So that's our theme. Look at it, verse 40. What do we have to be ready for if you're a believer, if you're a Christian? By the way, this command is for everybody. This isn't just for Christians. Because remember Jesus' audience of tens of thousands of people? There are unbelievers in the audience. There are people who don't know Christ. There's Judas, the betrayer, in the audience. He's not saved. He's from the devil, actually. There are 11 probably um, saved apostles there. There are the believing women who are in this audience. There are Jesus' enemies who hate his guts trying to kill him in this audience. And then there's just a bunch of people who are clueless and don't know who Jesus is in this audience. There are people who have been following Jesus for three years in this audience. There are people who have been healed and fed by Jesus in this audience. It is a completely mixed audience, and yet he gives this command to everybody. So it doesn't matter. So we, that's the beauty of this message is this message is for everybody. This message is for everybody here that's listening today. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you uh, believe in the Bible or not, whether you know anything about religion or not, this message is coming from the sovereign creator and judge of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is commanding you and all of us, you better be ready. Be ready for what, Jesus? Well, he tells us. So on the outline there, be ready. I broke this passage down into three points or three uh, main themes, 35 to 38, 39 to 40, and 41 to 48. First, there's the reminder. What, what do we have to be ready for? It's of Christ's coming. So first, there's the reminder of Christ's coming. That's 35 to 38. We'll see that. Then there's the reality of Christ's coming. It's certain. It's guaranteed. Regardless of what the mockers say, and the skeptics, and the agnostics and the atheists, and the critics. The reality of Christ's coming is 39 to 40. And then finally, the reward at Christ's coming is verses 41 to 48. Be ready. We need to be ready. So let's look at, we'll just start at 35. Be ready for Christ's return. If you want to have a proper Christian worldview that gives you balance in your life and helps you think about the present, you've got to think properly about the future in light of what God has revealed about it. Verse 35, he says, be dressed in readiness or gird up your loins. Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. Be like men or be like people who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him, to their master, when he comes back from the wedding feast and 
knocks on the door. Blessed are the slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes or when he returns. Truly I say to you that the master, he will gird himself. He will gird himself. He just told them to gird up themselves, and then he will gird himself. He'll pull up his rope because he's ready to do something. He's ready to serve. Notice he hasn't talked about himself yet. He didn't say, me, I'm returning. Get ready for me. Get your lamp ready for me. Gird up your loins for me, the master. Me. He, hasn't, he hasn't revealed his identity yet. But he is talking about himself. Uh, blessed are the slaves who are ready when he, Jesus, returns, comes back. Because when he comes back, he will gird up himself, pull up his robe, ready to serve. And he will have them, his slaves who are ready for his return, recline at the table and will come and wait upon them, serve them. Whether he comes in the second watch late at night or even in the third watch really late at night, like at three in the morning, and finds them, so blessed are those slaves who are ready for his coming. So the reminder of Christ's coming. So in verses 35 to 38, he did not say that he's talking about a second coming. He reveals that two verses later in verse 40. You too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And as a matter of fact, uh, verse 40, when he says the Son of Man, he's not even, a lot of people don't know that he's talking about himself. Did you know that after three, almost two and a half years of preaching and teaching, that even at this point, even some of his apostles haven't connected the dots that, oh, yeah, the Son of Man that Jesus keeps talking about is Jesus. They haven't connected the dots yet. These Jews. So you got to put yourself in the seat of the Jews at this time. You're sitting there. Imagine yourself. You're sitting there in this audience. You're getting crushed in. You're whining. Hey, I want to see. Can I get on your shoulder? Knock it off. You're stepping on my foot. I can't hear. Anyway. That's what was going on. That's what he's got to go against. And then, as a Jew, uh, all you've been raised, like I said, in this very narrow-minded worldview, quasi-Old Testament, because much of it has been distorted by the scribes and Pharisees under which you were taught in the synagogues as you grew up. And that's all you believe. You're a monotheist. You, you have nothing to do with Gentiles, Samaritans, or anybody else. They are not welcome. So you're very exclusivistic. You don't have all the entertainment and gadgets that we have in the world today, so you've pretty much got one thing to do. It's, it's work and religion, and that's how you live. And it's very much of a closed and narrow system. So that's what they're dealing with. And the worldview that they have is they have an understanding, if you're a Jew who believes in the Old Testament, you know what the Son of Man is because there's only one reference to it in the entire Old Testament. So let's go there. Now, as a Christian today and all of your Bible knowledge, you probably think of all kinds of things when you say the Son of Man. Probably when I read Son of Man, you were thinking Jesus. That is not what they were thinking. Let me say that again. When he said, be ready for the coming of the Son of Man, they were not thinking Jesus when he said Son of Man. But what do we think? Well, that's Jesus. Well, what were they thinking? Go to Daniel in your Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, um, I'm just going to read verse 40 again. Luke 12, 40. 
This is what you're supposed to be ready for. Be ready. You to be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. He is coming unexpectedly. Be ready. And what we're looking at is, well, did they understand what he meant, the Son of Man? I'd say probably a lot of them didn't understand. They hadn't connected the dots yet. But what they were thinking was Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, probably the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar. King of Babylon, pagan, overseeing Daniel for probably decades now. Uh, In the first year of Belshazzar, this would be 553 B.C. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing that we know the exact year from history and biblical data. That's how specific it is. 553 B.C. is when this transpired. In the first year of Belshazzar, Daniel had a dream. He had a because he was a prophet of God. God was communicating divine, special, supernatural revelation to Daniel in a dream because he was a prophet. Now, don't go home and think you can do that with your dreams. Because I can't do that with my dreams. I, I actually know people personally who put a lot of stock in their dreams, and they, they have journals. I've seen them. Notebooks. They write out their dreams wake up and write down all their dreams and then go back and try to interpret it and make me, what does this mean and how do I interpret this and as though God is speaking through their dream. That doesn't happen today. It happened to Daniel because he was a prophet of God. And it didn't happen all the time for Daniel. And even when it did happen to Daniel, it troubled him. It wasn't something that he necessarily welcomed or appreciated all the time. And, and also when it happened to him, he didn't know what it meant. He needed help to interpret it. Often he's asking the angel, can you tell me what, you just, what I just saw because it doesn't make sense to me, please. And sometimes the angel would accommodate him. But anyway, Daniel's having visions and dreams. And here's one of the visions starting at verse 9. Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. So he has a vision of heaven. There are thrones in heaven. And there's the ancient of days took his seat in heaven on the throne. What is that? That is God Almighty in anthropomorphic form. God the Father does not have a body. He's bigger than the universe. But in this vision, he is symbolized through the metaphor of the ancient of days, of a human body. So it's not God, it represents God the Father. He's called the ancient of days. He's the eternal one. So Daniel's looking, he sees God the Father, the author of history, the eternal one on his seat in heaven. His vesture, the clothes that he was wearing were white. He is sinless, he is pure, he is glorious. The hair of his head is white like wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. This is an amazing, glorious picture of God the Father up in heaven. A a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before the Ancient of Days, God the Father. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Who are that? That are angels, holy angels, and maybe saints. And myriads upon myriads were standing before the Ancient of Days, God the Father. The court sat. The books were opened. God is judge. He is the eternal one. This is overwhelming for David. Then the vision goes on. Look at verse 13. I kept looking at this vision in the night visions. And behold, behold is a very emphatic word. He he was struck by this. He was shaken by this. He didn't know what to think of this. Behold, with with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. So the son of man, he's not just standing there. He is in movement. He is in transition. He is with the clouds. It is awesome. That's what he sees. 
a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. He just approaches the throne of God the Father. With all rights and privileges, he can do that. He came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man is presented before God Almighty. Who is this? Well, this is the Messiah. All the Jews believed that this was the Messiah, the Son of Man. Based on this passage, Jewish theology, even in Jesus' day, believed and taught that the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And this was it, the Son of Man. This was a prophecy that the Son of God was coming. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him someday in the future. His dominion or his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. There it is. This is the greatest, most detailed uh, prophecy of the coming of the Son of Man in the entire Old Testament. And this is what every Jew in Jesus' day had in their mind. This is what they knew. So they knew that the Son of Man was the Messiah. He was coming. He was glorious. He was going to reign. He was going to be a king. He was going to reign with authority and power. He's going to reign over all the nations. He would reign also with his people because look at verse uh, 19. There were beasts throughout history, but in verse 18 it says, The saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom of the Son of God and possess the kingdom forever. For all ages to come. That's our future right there. The saints, that's you. If you're a Christian, that's you. Jesus will come. The Messiah, will, the Son of Man will come. He will come in glory. He will reign with an all-powerful kingdom. He's going to have saints with him, and he's going to entrust the rights of the kingdom to his saints, and they will rule with Christ forever. That's what it says right there. That's our future. That's our destiny. That's what the Jews were looking forward to. They were looking for the glorious coming of the Son of Man who would be the Messiah, who will reign literally on the earth. He will be a descendant of David, by the way. He will literally reign on a throne there in Jerusalem. He will overthrow the Romans who had them in slavery at the time, and he will take over the entire world, and the Jews and only the Jews would rule with Jesus, this coming Messiah. That's what they thought. And Jesus has been teaching for two and a half years, and he said repeatedly in his ministry, talking about the Son of Man, and still, at this point, they don't realize that Jesus is the Son of Man. So that's his challenge here, is to overcome their ignorance and get them to realize that he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man, it's arrived. He has come. He is here. The problem was in the Old Testament, it talked about the coming of the Messiah, right? But how many comings of the Messiah did the Old Testament Jews believe there were? Just one. Isaiah talks about the coming of the Messiah, the birth of the Messiah, the glory of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah. But as far as Isaiah knows, that's all, that all happens at one time, at one coming of the Messiah. Then we get the New Testament, and all of a sudden, how many Messiahs of the coming, uh, how many comings of the Messiah do we understand as Christians from the Bible, from New Testament? How many are there? Uh, two? Well, at least, right? It turns out that the one coming that the Jews believed in is at least two, because you have the birth, he comes in humility. That's separated by at least 2,000 years, and then he comes again at the end of the age in power and glory. That's two. But the Bible clearly teaches a rapture, which I think is a distinct coming. That's three. And actually there's four, because in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus said, I'm leaving, I'm going up to heaven, I will send the Holy Spirit, he will abide with you, and I will be in you and with you. So there's literally, Jesus' presence would be with his people through the Holy Spirit. So technically, you could say there's four comings of the Messiah that we understand 
But this audience Jesus is preaching to in Luke 12, they're just thinking there's one coming in the Messiah. And that's why they have not identified Jesus, this humble troublemaker who has no money and no place to lay his head, who's got enemies everywhere he goes. They're not identifying him with the glorious Son of Man who reigns with power and glory because he doesn't look anything like the profile. So that's a stumbling block. So go back to verse 35. So Jesus says, be ready. And he's talking about his coming as the Son of Man in fulfillment of Daniel 7. Dressed in readiness, dressed and ready to go at any time. It could be immediate. Keep your lamps lit. That means be, be prepared. In the event of a crisis, the lights go out. You're ready to go, especially at nighttime. If a thief comes in, you've got to have your light ready to go. Not just ready to go, but prepared to go. Verse 36, be like those who are waiting for their master when he returns. So there Jesus even alludes to the fact that I'm leaving and I'm going to come back. I will return. It says right here the word return. They had no idea that he was going to leave and return. So he, that's new information, verse 36. When he returns from the, for, uh, from the wedding feast. So he goes to heaven in the future. Jesus will after he dies. The wedding feast begins in heaven. And then Jesus is going to bring that wedding feast back down on earth. For the millennium. That's what he's talking about. So that when uh, they may, verse uh, 36, they may immediately open the door to Jesus when he comes and knocks and welcome him. Believers will welcome Jesus at the second coming. The Jews will welcome him. Right now they're giving a stiff arm to Jesus. Verse 37, and Jesus says, blessed are the slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. And what he's talking about is when he returns the second time when he returns the second time. You and I understand this because we have the whole Bible. Even his apostles, the apostles at this point, they don't get it. They don't understand this. What do you mean you're leaving and returning? What? In Acts chapter 1, they said, aren't you going to restore the kingdom now? They didn't understand an ascension, a departure, 2,000 years, and a return again. But they will understand that incrementally. But be ready, truly I say to you, that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table, and will come up and wait on them. What's he talking about there? Again, Daniel chapter 7. Jesus, as the Son of Man, will return at the end of the age. He will be crowned and coronated as King of the universe. He will literally reign on the earth. He will rule over all the nations. He will rule over his people, and then he will invite his people to be co-regents with him. Then get this. He invites them to sit down. He girds up his loins, and he begins. Remember when he washed the dirty feet of his apostles? He's going to do that again. He girds up his loins in the future, and he's going to serve all of us at the heavenly wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is coming. That is yet future. The fact that Jesus would do that as the glorified, resurrected Savior of the world is, is overwhelming. It's humbling. He's our Savior, he's our Lord, he's our judge, he's our brother. He's also going to be our servant at the glorious wedding, the heavenly wedding yet to come. And have them recline at the table and rest and rest in him and have fellowship and we'll come and wait on them. And then John gives us more information in the book of Revelation. Verse 38, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third watch, that's just late at night, and finds them ready, blessed are those slaves who are Ready. What's Jesus' point here? It's be ready. Be prepared. He could come at any time. He's going to tell us it's unexpected. There are no signs to it. No one knows the day or the hour, which is a good thing because that means we always have to be ready. 
Pastor Cliff, do you think Jesus is about to come? Uh, yeah, I think it's nearer today than it was yesterday. That's all I can tell you. But we got to be ready. Be ready. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.